This is Talking With, Brian Lamb's conversation with historian Douglas Brinkley. Episode 10 starts after this. You interviewed Neil Armstrong for how many hours? Uh, we did a day, an eight-hour day at NASA, a regular work day at NASA. Um, and I've talked to you about it before, but it was um, George Abbey, former, former head of the... Um, of the Space Center down there helped me set it up. And it was an honor just getting to talk to Armstrong because growing up in Ohio, he grew up down the road in Wapakoneta, Ohio, and I was in Perrysburg. And um, I just was amazed at that generation of pilots and uh, Korean War aces. I mean, in Korea, Brian, we didn't um, really have any missiles. So the war was won on the, by these aviators in the Korean War, and Armstrong, by some people's view, was the greatest military aviator of that, of that era and just was the right guy to pick to be the first person on the moon. And um, he turned 70 and felt he owed a oral history for his birthday to NASA. He did not want to do it. This was not a labor of love. It was a labor of obligation. Um, and the thought was that I would be good, and I'm younger. And, um, you know, it's... Where are the tapes? Um, Na- they're in NASA. They may be online. I have them. Um, I, you know, they, they were tape recorded by NASA, of you know, people. So I just sat like we are, and somebody was running um, the machine, and uh, we'd have a brown box lunch uh, a little bit. My only... I had him autograph uh, his a book for me, which went against protocol, but I couldn't resist, um, and I'm glad I did. But he couldn't have been nicer, and, um, you know, I was always a big fan of John Glenn and Neil Armstrong. I, I kind of was Ohio proud of them what, growing up. What did he tell you that you didn't know before the interview? Oh, a lot of things. Uh, and by the way, did you write this? Did you write it somewhere? Did it... Did you publish an article? I wrote a major cover story for American History magazine, and I did a long article for Newsweek, and I put some of it into my book called American Moonshot, John F. Kennedy and the Great Space Race. I still have more. I wanted to... I toyed with the idea of writing a biography of Armstrong, but a man named James Hansen, a professor at Auburn, did such a good book called First Man that I, I reviewed Hansen's biography of Armstrong for the New York Times, and when I read it, I thought, uh, I can't do that. He already did it, and I mean, it was really good biography, and he seemed to understand aviation history, but more importantly, the, um, the engineering that went to go to the moon better than I ever could. Um, but I've lectured on him, too, at Purdue. I talked about uh, Neil Armstrong, and I spoke down in Huntsville, Alabama, on behalf of NASA. One of the great thrills when my book, American Moonshot, came out was NASA, didn't, they don't know what to do when a new book comes out, you know, because it could be pro-NASA, anti-NASA, their government agency. Um, so they didn't do anything when my book first came out. But after somebody got around it and, and saw it for a while, they liked it, and so they got books for all their employees. And I got to go and give a talk at NASA to all the current NASA employees down in Houston 
at the Johnson Space Center, massive auditorium of all the NASA people. I was so intimidated. These are the real people that are going to, you know, and I'm over here telling my space stories. Uh, And it went great. It it went, it was just, they were so generous. And I signed books for everybody. And they had bought just boatloads of books to give employees as their souvenir of the 50th of going to the moon. Was there anything special about Neil Armstrong? Um, it gets back to our early conversation of work ethic. I mean, he knew he loved aviation. I loved history. He went to Purdue to pursue an education. I went to Ohio State and Georgetown. And then it wouldn't work for him. Anytime he could be around an airplane, Armstrong was in. He loved flight. And, and he also had an extraordinary a cool temperament, unflappable. I, you could not get him to, um, you know, either, the thought of him panicking in space was zero. He had that something about him, a steely, cool disposition, which made him the perfect, you know, um, first astronaut. Um, he has great sense of humor, if you got to him a little bit in uh, but his big thing I picked up from, which he talks a lot about, is engineering. He felt that the engineers are most underwritten about in American history, that we don't do biographies of great engineers, we don't celebrate them, and that really, in his mind, 20th century America was built by amazing engineering. Very interesting point. Um, and I've had William Ruckel's house first head of the Environmental Protection Agency tell me that in a similar vein, the one thing all historians are missing is the history of sewage treatment. <laughs> he said, we, we, we take it for granted, this mm-hmm. system we have in our country, that's quite remarkable for processing all, but nobody, it's like find, go find the book on it. And, uh, and, and so, you know, in both of their, I, I, I remember those things. I once knew a professor at Hofstra, Robert Sobel, who died of brain cancer, but he had told me that somebody should write a history of cement. And at first you laugh about it, but you do a little digging and you see how cement changed things. Uh, so there's a lot about history that we're, we, you know, we tend to gravitate towards biography or these political history, but there, there are other ways to approach uh, studying things. What did Neil Armstrong, what was his relationship with Buzz Aldrin? They had a, I would not call it a good relationship. I think they were, they were professional with each other. What's the camera story? Um, well, the camera is that, you know, Buzz Aldrin wanted to be the first person on the moon, and so did others. But Neil got cherry-picked to be the first for a lot of reasons, um, but mainly uh, be that he was not active military. Uh, Nixon did not want to seem to be militarizing the moon and they wanted somebody who was had a military background but wasn't active that ticked Buzz Aldrin off Uh, and Buzz had to be number two but he got some revenge by being the uh, having Neil take the photos of him so all the photos we see of the first man on the moon are really pictures of Neil Armstrong's taking of Buzz Aldrin um, 
they kept their disagreements from public theater. It never got out of hand, but uh, you talk to enough NASA veterans of that era, and uh, you know there there wasn't a, a great um, natural friendship between the two. But Neil Armstrong's camera didn't work. Yeah, and, and Armstrong's camera then didn't work. And and so the, the pictures were. He ended up using Buzz Aldrin's yes. camera to take all the pictures. You got it. Um. Only one of the few times I've ever heard you irritated in an interview <clears throat> was one you did, and I can't remember who it was with, pushing you <laughs> to agree that the boomer generation was the generation that caused all the trouble in this country. And uh, you weren't buying it. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I never, I love the greatest generation of Tom Brokaw, but I, I look at every generation in America as being great in its own way. That boomer generation did a lot. I mean, um, they, the civil rights um, alone, you know, um, in, in, in opening up the American narrative in the 1960s and 70s to the point now that we have national monuments in the National Park Service for Cesar Chavez and the farm workers or Stonewall for LGBTQ people or Buffalo Soldiers or um, Harriet Tubman and that movement of um, of the 60s of opening up uh, America, doing away with Jim Crow um, and starting to rethink about Medicaid and Medicare and, and public health, um, just remarkable achievements. But I don't like it when a, one generation puts down another generation. I think there's a feeling the baby boomers blew it. Um, but the baby boomers did a lot right, and and I don't have genera I don't have generational animosity from one generation or another. Do you? Uh, well, let me rephrase it. Um, what is your attitude about always being positive? I try to be positive. I don't know if that comes out. I always try to be very positive. Um, I think that I comes out of um, just realizing how short time is and that you don't... I always find, Brian, that when you're, we die, you don't want to have any enemies and you don't want to be angry. If you want to live your life where you're not filled with resentment, you know, and so you got to learn to forgive and let go. And I do that a lot. And I find people get motivated more by being more optimistic than pessimistic. Um, I'm, I'm not cynical. I have worries about American society right now more than ever. I never thought I would have this much worry about our country, but I'm, I stay optimistic. I mean, you don't have hope. Um, then what are what do you have? I mean, that's what keeps us going is just hope that we can make a difference in our daily lives and hope that we can help people, hope that we our time here alive was beneficial to other people, hope that you're a good father, and, you know, that's all we have. So um, you go back and look at your own life. Um, you're 60 years old. you got uh, 35 years to go. <laughs> or more. Um, what What do you want to get done when it comes to the culture part of this? What What's on your What's on your docket? Um, well, I would love to write on um, about blues and jazz with uh, the Wynton Marsalis situation. I told you about. I've worked a little bit with a friend of mine doing some jazz productions this year. We worked on an album together with on Dave Brubeck. 
uh, great jazz musician. This is a, his 100th birthday, Brubeck. So I like to keep doing my music. Let me jump in and ask, does anybody care, though? No. Very I mean, little. How do you sell that? I mean, don't. Dave Brubeck was big in my life. But, yeah, you know. I'm a historian, though. I have that problem. I look back on people uh, with a kind of fondness. Um, I think you hit an age where you want to do what's nonprofit, and so for me, it's um, doing a lot with the environment. Or and by that, I mean uh, wild and scenic rivers, um, saving special places in America. I'm really into the national parks, state parks, uh, outdoor recreation. The natural world, um, because I feel I'm like a million dollars when I get to hike or look at the ocean or see a hummingbird. And I've stayed very connected. Um, you know, Thoreau used to, Henry David Thoreau used to say, you're, you know, you don't have to look at, you know, heaven by looking up, heaven is here on earth. There's so many beautiful places, and it's just kind of creating a mindfulness and awareness of what's going on. I read a lot of poets like William Carlos Williams, uh, where they were called symbolists. So Williams from Patterson, New Jersey, would write like, um, so much depends upon a red wheelbarrow um, glazed with rainwater beside the white chickens. Now, the point of that was just a photo image. So I sometimes like try to have mindfulness where I study something almost like you would be sketching it just to create a sharp memory when I see things. Other people will do a, oh, look at that, and I'll take a photo um, of it. But I just try to etch like um, um, a great, um, you know, moment that I, I remember. And that way I keep my memory fresh. Um, I like, um, you know, I have three kids, so I'm excited to get my kids to college. I'm excited to go to their sporting events. I'm excited to see their lives and get lucky. Maybe I'm alive for them to have grandchildren. Ann and I, our kids are just everything. I mean, we are we are uh, two dogs, two cats, a parrot, and three kids. So I got my, my life. Um, but there are books that I'm hoping to um, uh, write. You know, I'm realizing as I hit 60, I am fatigued a little more. I don't have quite the energy. It just left me at around 58, and I'm ha- going to have to cope with that. I have to gather all my papers. I've saved an awful lot. Um, so, for example, if I wrote Rosa Parks' biography, I have, oh, I don't know, maybe 50 cassette tapes dealing with Rosa Parks or seminal people around her. What are you going to do with all I, that? I have two options now. Boston University has been for a decade now actively trying to acquire my archive. Uh, and I've hesitated because of Rice University, where I'm at, uh, and their special collections. Um, it's hesitation is it's going to take some time for me to weed through all of these boxes that I've saved and put in store, storage. And I started that when COVID happened a little, and it, I, I only went so far. It's sort of weird looking at your back pages. Um, and so, but I'm going to have to confront doing that. And then if I get that burn off my back, uh, there are places I want to travel. I'm embarrassed. I've never been to Ireland. Uh, I love Irish music. I mean, deeply love it. And I've never been to Ireland, so I'd like to go to Dublin and drive around. Um, I've also 
Um, very humble. Before you leave there, let me ask you: Have you do you have a favorite Irish writer? Oh, Irish writer. Um, well, I mean, I actually have spent. Uh, yeah, obviously, I mean, um, James Joyce for me, uh, the Dubliners, um, a portrait of an artist um, as a young man, but also. I studied Finnegan's Wake with a reader's guide. I couldn't learn it on my own. <laughs> and so I had one of these guides. The only two writers I've ever done that with are Thomas Pynchon with Gravity's Rainbow and Finnegan's Wake. I couldn't make heads or tails out of them. And so I got some academic did these wonderful reader's guides that they can help you decipher it. There's one on Kurt Vonnegut now, too, an encyclopedia of Kurt Vonnegut. So if you read it and match it with it, then it starts going, and then it really comes together. But the way Joyce tried to save dialect and the language, to me, is very impressive. I once went to his grave, in, um, which was in Switzerland, and I, I made a great long pilgrimage to just go sit there and eat a bologna sandwich because I was reading him. Um, you know, I like going to, you know, to a little bit of travel. I've seen almost all the United States, but I've not been to one state. 49, and I still have never been to Hawaii. And the reason is I always feel if I go there, I'd like to go for a month, and I never have the month. So maybe down the line here, I'll go there for my month, but I desperately want to be able to say I went to all 50 states. And then I... I have the benefit of convincing my wife to become a diehard Detroit Tiger fan because I grew up there in Toledo and it was really Detroit market. Um, so we went last week. I saw the Tigers play the Astros um, with a, in a limited stadium. It, great. The Tigers won. And uh, we hope to go I, with my kids, visit all these stadiums. It's just a little lack, a check. But How it's many fun. are you visiting? Yeah, I mean, About yeah. half. I'm about half. I'm really like to go see the, the the Brewers Stadium, and you know we're talking about people uh, of interviewing and all. Uh, you know, I recently wrote for the New York Times a profile of Hank Aaron, the great baseball great, who I knew as a kid, and I spent election night in Atlanta at the um, at the Aaron's house, uh, and he was in great shape. I mean, I taped him and. I was all set up through people that knew him in Atlanta, and I was with Billy, his wife, and we had a great time in his home. And that was November, and then, boom, I got the news in January that he had passed. So I wrote this piece for the New York Times about it. And uh, I, um, I, his story fascinates me, how Aaron, everybody here talks about Jackie Robinson, but the way Hank Aaron was able to uh, beat Babe Ruth with hate threats and the like swirling around him. What a great man he was. Did, by the way, because he was a, a teacher, did you ever read Frank McCourt? Oh, yeah. And you used to have Frank on. You got to know him pretty well, I think, uh, probably. Is that right where you are? Yeah. I mean, he, he was a, a, just a great interview. <laughs> He's a great interview. He's a storyteller par excellence. I got to know him through my good friend, very good friend, William Kennedy, a novelist. He, he wrote a book, many books. Is it William J. Kennedy? Uh, no, it's William Kennedy of Albany, and he writes novels okay. about Albany and more. He wrote one of the best political novels called Roscoe, uh, but he also did Ironweed, which Meryl Streep and Jack Nicholson starred in. But Kennedy runs the, uh, for years, with his wife Dana, ran the writer's school at the State University of New York, 
and he was very tight with Frank McCourt. And when we'd go to these writers' conferences, he'd uh, Frank McCourt would always be there, talk to anybody and tell stories, and uh, and and William Kennedy's that way too. I, one of our most underappreciated novelists of um, my lifetime was is William Kennedy. I when I when you, Frank McCourt just reminded me of a story. I went up to. Stuyvesant High School, where he taught in New York City, to take his photograph for the first book notes book we ever did. And after it was over, I was so excited because he just, he was electric. Uh, and that wonderful Irish uh, accent. And afterwards, he said, Where are you going next? I said, Well, I have to go back uptown. He said, Come on, I'll ride up with you. I'll, I'll, I want to buy you a, a subway ticket. Oh, we got on the subway, and a woman on the subway came up to him and said, "Are you Frank McCourt?" And he said, "Yes, that's me." He said, "Well, you taught my son in high school." And then there was just a big love affair that went on. So he was quite a guy. Oh man, yeah. Well, that's it. And you may, and you start missing, as you know, all these people in your life. As you get older, your people start going, and you're, you know, I'm starting to. We're talking about well-known people I've interviewed today, but I've one of those people who stayed in touch with everybody from my high school. We talk all the time. Last week, I just had a meal with one of my friends from Ohio that came to see me. Um, and so I'm sad. We're lo- starting to lose my team, you know, people from my class in Perrysburg. And, uh, well, stop for just a second, because I'm going to ask you about that. Um, how I don't mean it was difficult, but how hard have you worked at staying in touch with people you went to high school with? I make it a pri- They're my priority often. Um, they maybe are my best friends. I've made other friends, but I'm one of those people that we had a little special thing going on in Perrysburg. Uh, it was hard to explain. I guess everybody feels their class was, but we, our particular class stays very united, and we follow everybody's life very closely. One of my great friends, Dave Wilson, um, may, a great football player, just died. As he had heart issues galore, and he just passed, so I'm going back up to Ohio for his memorial service. And they would want me to be funny. He would want me to be funny in the eulogy. You know, they remember me being funnier than I am now. I was funny when I was a boy. <laughs> they, they, they want, you know, that me, Brinks. They used to call me, you know, they Brinks, you know. And so when I've been trying in my mind think of the eulogy that's both appropriate and very funny because he would have, he would have appreciated that. And um, But anyway, I'm happy. I mean, I think I feel always love this country like you. That's one thing that we share. I'm always proud of the U.S. Uh, I'd love to do more with um, thinking about armed forces and how to... I, I get the most touched. Like one of my books, The Boys of Point to Hawk, about the U.S. Army Second Rangers is taught. I get letters from them in, from Florida. I just Monterey um, Naval School, their, their mandatory reading um, some of the books I did on military history um, are alive in those military, you know, military circles, which is exciting to me. Um, I think my favorite time teaching was at the Naval Academy um, because I, I didn't have the discipline, but to see the young people up that early. And, so, and, and incidentally, Brian, when we talk about today, because I do do the environment a lot. We could have done this whole thing on the environment. Climate change, they come out a climate core, uh, like FDR and the New Deal. People have to realize it was a different generation. FDR's new, uh, CCC, civilian con- they were up at bugle call. 
you're going, you're going to, you're, you know, you're doing a conservation tree planting, um, you know, stocking ponds, doing uh, mountain roads. These CCC men and some women, they were working from bugle call all the way to the evening, hard labor. And I always wonder whether we do a climate core of young people today. A lot of young people are like, well, I'm good to work that weekend, but then I need my leisure time. You know, I've got to go meet my, they all are like doing, um, you know, they have all of their other issues. Uh, if you're really going to do that climate core, you've got to make it so it's real public service, like two years where you're up at the crack of dawn and working on a, you know, wetlands rehabilitation or uh, being, um, being, you know, um, uh, working to prevent wildfires um, in, in helping bird rehabilitation. You can do that, but it's work. It's not just, uh, uh, and I felt that Job Corps and some of these other programs, um, we don't have the same grit that we used to have. I mean, the CCC, they work their tails off and the Peace Corps, when as Kennedy created it, the young people would teach people agriculture and how to, you know, do proper sanitation and all. Now it's a little bit more like resume padding. How does it look good for me? And so Kennedy's sense of public service, if, if, if young people, we get them back working. I, with no military draft, no public service, I feel people being disengaged from our government, and we've got to get teach civics, civics, civics in the high schools. We've got to reteach government. We've got to teach core American history. We have to open up the narrative American history to for more inclusion of, of indigenous people, women, um, you know, um, people of color, more than we've done. But, you know, we got to do it in a spirit of um, that this is an extraordinary country. And uh, we have an obligation to learn our history and learn about how our government works. Douglas Brinkley is an American historian and author. You can listen to more interviews with him by searching his name in the video library at cspan.org.